Did you know Mike Sinyard dropped out of high school? That didn't stop him from starting Specialized Bicycles and growing it into one of the largest and most influential bicycle brands in the world. Curious how he did it? Here's a quote that sums up quite a bit of his philosophy. One of the things in starting a business or doing anything, life is an open book test. Anything you're doing, if you're looking, you can find a lot of information and input on how to do it. The thing is, a lot of people don't like to do that. They just want to do it the way they want to do it. That doesn't mean take the input and follow it blindly, but it is part of the process. That open-minded philosophy has helped guide him to create something far bigger than himself. So what's stopping you from launching something great? Mike did it just like everyone else, one small step at a time. The podcast by Tyler Benedict that explores the startup stories and growth tactics of hundreds of entrepreneurs, plus his own tips and tricks learned over two decades of launching, running, and growing businesses, including BikeRumor.com, the world's largest and most popular cycling tech blog. If you're thinking of starting your own business, the Build Cycle will give you the tools and inspiration to do it right. Now, let's dive into this episode of The Build Cycle. Mike, I know you're super slammed all the time, but I want to thank you very much for coming on board. And um, yeah, I've got a ton of questions, so let's dive right in. Uh, you know, I, I think most people, if they want to get the long version, they can go to specialized.com and sort of read kind of how you started the company. But if you want to give us maybe like the two minute version of that, that'll be a good way to get started. Sure. Thanks, Tyler. Um, <clears throat> well, the two minute version. Um, <clears throat> When I was in uh, all the way through school, I loved bicycles. Um, I rode my bike to to school all the time, and uh, would fix up bikes from the flea market. <clears throat> so, really, when I graduated from school, I thought I just want to work with bikes. I don't care how much money I make, um, and for sure, I don't want to go into regular business and wear a tie and do something I don't believe. So. <clears throat> so so the short story is I sold everything I had and rode around Europe and I met some of the, the very best uh, manufacturers, uh, primarily in Italy, and they believed in me. And uh, so I used the money from the Volkswagen bus and that was the start of the company. And the bike shops uh, that I knew paid in advance for the product. So. <clears throat> I think the first year sales were, um, gross sales were $60,000. Wow. And what kind of parts were these that you started bringing in? Yeah. So the parts were basically parts that I believed in that were hard to find, which was uh, Chinelli bars and stems, um, <clears throat> Regina chains and freewheels in, uh, in a lot of different configurations and uh, cogs so you could build up the free wheels to the cogs, uh, setup you wanted. And this was 1974, correct? Yeah, 1974. And I guess the most fun of that was going over to Europe. And, <laughs> and the only thing I owned was uh, basically the bike and, and what was in the Panairs and traveling around for three months and camping outside is a fantastic experience. That's amazing. And if I remember the story right, you kind of got lucky in that along the ride or at a bar or something, you met somebody who knew some of the brands or some of the European distributors. And, and that kind of is how you got connected with them, right? Well, yeah, I was staying at a youth hostel in Milan and uh, there was a woman there and and she goes, oh, yeah, I know uh, uh, Chino Tonelli. And, and of course, like a lot of people in Europe, she could speak Italian and French. And, and so... Uh, so I bought some uh, nice clothes so I wouldn't look like the bum that I was and, and went over there. And that's that's how things started. How old were you at this time? 24. Oh, wow. That's a heck of a story. So at, at that point, did you have any inkling of an idea that you would 
eventually have your own branded equipment or did you just plan on being a distributor? Well, at that time, I just thought, well, I'll just be a distributor because I couldn't imagine uh, better parts than those parts, right? I mean, those those Italian companies were, in my view, really the the gods of the cycling industry. So how did you go from doing that to creating your own uh, a specialized branded product? And what were those first products? Yeah, so the so the very first products were were tires, and and one of the reasons for that is I really had since I didn't have a a car, I rode my bike everywhere, and I really believe that the most powerful way to improve the performance of your bike is through the tires, and there was such a gap between you know what I would call clincher tires and tubular tires because the clincher tires were these really heavy gumwall so i thought let's make a tire that is closer to the to the tubular tire but has the durability of clincher and and nobody else would do that nobody was interested in europe um so that's when i decided to make our own tires did you was this really just a, a personal desire or did you see a market for something like that in the u.s well, um, yeah, it was just a personal desire, and I thought, well, I just, I just believed that other people would want the same thing, and people that I rode with, I know they would want that. So it was just, it was just obvious, right? And a lot of the things that we did then, and even now, is because we personally would believe. And, and what year was that when you started doing your own tires? Um, in 75. Oh, wow. So pretty quick. Oh, yeah. Very quick. At that time, how did you go about doing that? Did you have to go to Asia or where, like, where were the tires being made in bulk back then? Um, they were made in Asia. Surprisingly, the best tires, clincher tires were being made in Asia. So I just, uh, I just found out who are the manufacturers over there and and uh, wrote him a letter and and then started that way. Cool. From there, what were the next two or three or four products that followed tires? Yeah, well, uh, on the tires, that was pretty big. I mean, there was, first of all, the Tureen tires. If you remember in uh, 76, everybody was the bicentennial. Everybody was crazy about riding their bike across country. And, uh, and so the tires were really... Uh, <clears throat> really big. So we had the touring tire and then later the turbo, which was a folding tire, a racing tire. And uh, other products that started after that were were water bottles. We used to bring in water bottles from Italy, but they were, they were so stiff and they didn't use the best material. So I found somebody to make water bottles here in the U.S. with the um, all virgin natural material that was very pliable. So that was, um, I mean, it sounds like a small thing, water bottles, but if you have a really great one, everybody wants it. So those were some of the very first um, products. That's cool. So how did you go from those small goods and parts to full bikes or frames? Yeah, well, so I would say the other thing I did was um, at that time, Tyler was, I sold a lot of frame building components, a lot of tubing and lugs to a lot of frame builders. Um, so it was basically kind of an agent for them. And so I realized that there was really a need um, for uh, basically a touring bike because uh, there was either kind of like these what we call racing bikes that were we call criterium bikes that were really steep and twitchy um, and I felt or these really kind of uh, touring bikes that were sleds mm -hmm. <laughs> so I thought well there's a great opportunity to really make a touring bike utilizing some of the ideas that actually are not new ideas but the way Italians used to make bikes, um, 
the old road, road racing bikes with uh, much more laid back geometry. So that was essentially the first bike. It was a frame and that was a Sequoia that we, uh, that we made. And I think you had, it was Jim Mayer's make it for you, right? Uh, actually, the very first one was um, was Tim Neenan, who was a frame builder in Santa Cruz. And uh, Tim was um, one of our first employees. And, and he was a fanatic about everything he did. Um, he was a fanatic about food and about pasta and frame builder. And, and I learned a lot from him about, you know, what great, what great is, whether it's a paint job or frame building. <clears throat> so, so that um, started initially uh, with Tim, and then we made the made the first bikes. Yeah. All right. So all this time, like you, you kind of seeing a need for one part, and then you're like, oh well, you know, this this isn't so good. Let's try this. Like, did you ever think it would get to this? ginormous national or international company and brand that you have now? Well, I never, I never focused on the size or essentially the, you know, like a big sales target. It was, in fact, I kind of avoided that was just focus on doing things that were great that we believed in. Um, and uh, I was very fortunate to have really good um, talent that joined that joined and, and one of the um, probably the best artisan in the industry that is not known is Jim Merz. Um, and he made uh, later after Tim, he made uh, virtually most of the innovations that the company had. That's awesome. Is he still with you guys? Well, no, he's re well, he is. He lives down in Big Sur. Um, uh, and he'll do some work now and then. He was just, he'll do a few things. Uh, you know, we just introduced that bike, um, his bike, the MERS bike. Um, but he's not working full time. Okay. And yeah. So it seems like that that uh, need for something better, or you're, you're kind of doing this and adding something else better to like the saddles and then the bars. Because at this point, other than the shifters and derailers, I think Specialized makes every other part that goes onto a complete bike, right? Uh, a lot of those parts, yeah. Yeah, is it, um, was was all of that just this progression of like, well, hey, I think we can do this a little bit better, or does it get to a point where you're like, okay, we can save a lot of money if we're not having to buy physique saddles, we can just make our own branded saddles and that'll save us, you know, X sensor dollars on every bike. Yeah. It, um, it is. It started in the beginning mainly from the mountain bike, because with the mountain bike there were no components. There was nothing. So whether you wanted handlebars, uh, stems, uh, tires, and and wheels, so we had to develop everything. And it was really fun um, to do that because also mountain riders are very open. And uh, whereas the road was very defined. So it was really out of the need. And as we say, the founding principle is, you know, focus on the rider's need, you know, whatever that rider is for uh, a true performance benefit. So that's, that's how we've always done it. And to try to not just make a frame and put parts on it, but how do you envision the whole the whole system. All right, cool. So as you grew from this, I mean, you were kind of a one-man show for when you very first started, because I've seen, you know, at the museum, you guys have like your bike with the, the trailer on it that you were hauling parts around to the shops. What were, were some of your first key hires? Like what were some of the first things that you delegated to others? Well, probably, um, <clears throat> I would say some of the first key hires was, well, Jim Merz was one of the first uh, key hires and um, and also people to work in the warehouse, but, but I also did that as well. So, you know, it was a very, 
lean organization and uh, not because we were trying to, it's just that was the only way, right? Um, when I started the company with the $1,500 and the financing from the stores, um, and there's a, you know, it's funny, you know, as far as the learning for people, you know, in business school, they always teach you economies of scale. And, and in some ways, I would disagree, especially now, but even then, <clears throat> I call it uh, economies of tiny. The smaller you are, um, in some ways, um, the more you can look at all kinds of different ways to do things. It's very powerful. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Um, sometimes when a, somebody starts a company, the biggest enemy for them could be to have a lot of money. Because then you come up with, in isolation, a lot of ideas. And, and you get so entrenched in that. It makes, in some ways, it makes you less adaptable. Um, and, and maybe, not everybody, but maybe in some ways, you don't seek out as much um, ways of doing things. Right, like outside feedback? Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. So when you were small, you know, a couple of people, warehouse people, I, I guess mainly you selling and then trying to also develop your own products. What were what were some of the biggest challenges with those and how did you overcome them? <laughs> well, you know, what's funny is um, like a lot of things. So in, in, in many ways, I never had a real job besides specialized. Right. I mean, I had jobs when I was going to college and things like that, but never a job where that was kind of like uh, besides just labor, I would say. Right. <laughs> so so uh, I think the biggest challenge was, was, you know, so many things that happen, you have to figure out a solution. And uh, whether it was not having money uh, or, you know, finding ways to get the right people in and uh, and I think it makes you very adaptable um, but you know money when you start is always a problem right so let's fast forward a little bit you've you've grown you've got some bikes out there and and I don't know the year but I, I remember talking with some of your team about this when I was out of the recent product launches but um there's there's kind of two big things in specialized history that I'd love to talk on. You can pick whichever order you want to talk about them. But the first is, and I didn't even know this until like two months ago, that specialized created a separate brand to sell into big box retailers, uh, you know, like maybe sporting goods or Walmart. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit about why you did that and why it didn't work out. And then also yeah. how Merida came into the picture and, and ended up with some ownership of Specialized and what that what the status of all that is now. Sure. Well, I think as far as uh, the other brand that was created years ago, I think it was, I could look exactly. It might have been year 95 or 2000. No. Yeah. I could find out. But anyway, we created a brand full force. At that time, the company had grown, and I and I thought, well, you know, I need to bring in some people from outside uh, to really help me run the business, and um, and they were great, smart people, and and all that. But they didn't really understand this brand, and 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 they said, well, hey, the thing to do is create another brand you could sell in the mass market that could really provide kind of a balance to the company and a finance to the company um, to do other things. And so we created this brand called Full Force. Um, and uh, I would say it was, it was a total mistake. It didn't fit the culture uh, for the brand and it really put us in a very bad position. 
how so? So with the specialized brand, you were selling only through like dedicated bike shops, independent bike shops, right? right? So right. what was like what? Why was the full force thing such a bad idea? What what went wrong? Well, I would say first of all, it didn't fit the culture of the company. Right. Right. Everything is about culture, right? And so that didn't fit at all. And so that really took us off. It was like, well, we kind of lost our identity and our focus. Um, and it, it, we, we had joked, well, we should just call ourselves generalized, right? <laughs> <laughs> did, uh, so did people, um, did specialized get sort of a, a bad connotation because of full force or were the brands separate? Like I look at what Cannondale does, right? Like nobody, yeah. nobody kind of looks at Cannondale bikes as bad just because, you know, like the mongoose is sold in Walmart. It was, you know, they're, they're fairly separate, oh. I think in people's, um, consciousness. But was there a bad crossover with your brands? Well, I would say it was, but I would say, you know, we're a small brand. We still are. And, and it's like, well, what does the brand stand for? What do you think about when you get up in the morning? And, and it was just off. So that, so that put, um, it really confused things. <clears throat> right. And, and it didn't go on too long. And basically I said, okay, that's it. We're done with that. And, um, told everybody in the company, Hey, <clears throat> we're focusing. <clears throat> And uh, I think it was around that time that we got our core people together and created uh, created a brand book <clears throat> and and you know, really what and that was very helpful. Yeah. So from a number of standpoint, like sales did full force do well in sales or did it struggle? Yeah, it did pretty well. It right. did pretty well, but it. it it, it wasn't going to do well long term. Why do you think? Well, I think it it would be um, because it didn't fit the culture of the company, right. and and therefore um, create a lot of confusion and. It was kind of the opposite of what I started the company for and right. the reason. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah, so you, it was kind of a distraction from what you really wanted to be doing, sounds like. Yeah, hugely. Hugely. Yeah. And then you ask about, you know, years ago, you know, you know since I started the company with no um, finance, you know, as we went along, I always thought, you know, we had taken um, bank financing and other things like that over the years. And I always thought, well, I didn't want Specialized to be owned by an investment group in New York or something. Um, so I was fortunate enough to hook up with uh, uh, and check with some Asian companies. And, and uh, Marita made... Uh, investment which is a minority investment and so that was uh that's been very good because philosophically you know an asian company is quite is normally quite different in the way they think about things than a u.s company so it's given us a very strong base yeah well and there are there marita is already a big bike brand and manufacturer as well so they yes you know, they know what you're doing it's not like some you know, yes, venture capital fund that doesn't understand bikes at all. So that's good. Yeah, it, it, yeah, it's not about. And I think the way, you know, the way that we run the company is about doing things that we're proud of, and and um, you know, as we say, the writer's the boss. It's not like uh, Wall Street is the boss. <laughs> right. And, and so, Marita still owns a, a stake in Specialized. Yeah. Okay. Is that uh, who's? Do you own the majority share, or do you have other investors? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I own. I own all the control. 
on the control and majority share in voting of specialized. Now, the Merida deal, I, I, you can say what, what you want about uh, the manufacturing. Do you guys use Merida's manufacturing to produce your bikes then, since you have a relationship? Yeah, they're one of, uh, one of many of our manufacturers. We have quite a few different ones. And do you uh, own any of those manufacturers or do you outsource? Uh, we don't own any of the manufacturers and we purposely do not. Okay, why is that? Uh, because it allows us to work with um, uh, different ones and uh, basically our loyalty is uh, we are loyal, but we're loyal to who provides the rider the best product. Now that you've grown, um, you know, compared to the challenges as a small company, what are some of the challenges you face now as a, a pretty big company? Yeah, I, I would say um, I, I would say there's um, some of the challenges are, you know, as the as the company is larger, is kind of the way we work right is always aligning people the way we work you know 70 percent of our business is outside the u.s so um, and we're a very multicultural brand globally so you know getting alignment on that and i would say the multicultural is also what makes us and, and multinational which makes us really good because we learn from each other um, and and I think uh, those things are always challenges and opportunity and you know and also how do you have enough process to make things work but not so much that it slows you down right how many employees do you have now globally about 1600 okay that's fewer than I would have thought how many of those are based in the US Hmm. Uh, probably no. Probably uh, probably about five hundred. Okay. And then, so the the international staff is it? Like, what are they doing? Is it mostly sales and marketing, or do you have the product development outside of the U.S.? Yeah, we do have product development. We have um, we have uh, basically four innovation centers. We have one in Switzerland for the turbo bike and other things, but mainly turbo, right? And then we have uh, actually in Boulder, uh, we're just uh, reopening the, the retool, focuses on retool and body geometry there in Boulder, not too far from the bike park. Uh, we also have um, uh, Taiwan, which is a pretty big one uh, for engineering, um, and uh, testing and manufacturing. And then in Morgan Hill, uh, suspension lab, uh, testing, uh, rapid prototype. So those are four big ones. And then we have a couple other smaller ones. We have one in, in, uh, in uh, uh, Shenzhen, and we also have one outside Shanghai. And what is your role these days? Like, what, are your, what is your time spent doing most? That's what I wonder. <laughs> <laughs> is that, yeah, yeah. Well, how, how involved, involved are you in like product development or the marketing? Yeah, I, I would say, uh, well, really my role is, I would, I would say is probably the bigger um, view of the company and, and the global uh, markets around the world that, um, that we have. Um, so I spend a lot of time with that. I would say on the product, um, I am involved to an extent. I mean, I would say the guys here are so beyond me most of the time, but sometimes um, of, the, of the ideas or bigger ideas, I would uh, be involved in that. I mean, sometimes it's like, hey, to encourage people on, on some of those ideas to go ahead, right? Um, 
Yeah. So it's uh, yeah, it's really the the product, the brand, um, and and the global markets. Yeah. Do when you guys are developing new products. Or like looking at a new category, like let's you know, gravel kind of blew up in the last few years, and you guys have the sequoia for that. Um, how how hard is it to develop a product for a global market, or are cyclists kind of the same all over the world? Like, do you guys have to develop? Because to me, it seems like all of your product works just fine for the U.S. market. But do you develop something that's really tailored to a different market? <laughs> Yeah, there may be nuances, but uh, generally the way we look at it is we go after the, we try to satisfy the most core rider, and and then we feel like, okay, that's the highest hurdle, and if we satisfy the core rider, then the other riders will be more than satisfied. Okay. So about the staff. one of the things that impresses me the most is that when I visited your headquarters, like everyone there seemed really genuinely stoked to be there, you know, and I've seen since the almost nine years now that we've been doing bike room or a little more than nine years, you know, you've had, especially in the PR and marketing side, you know, so people come and go, but what it seems to me is that somebody's either there for like a month or two and they're gone or they're there for like five years or more. You know, so it's you guys have a strong culture, and maybe you could speak to like how you've developed that culture, and how do you find the people that are kind of like really aligned with it? Yeah, well, that's a good one, Tyler. I think I think sometimes, um, yeah, we do have a strong culture, um, and and you have to love bikes to be here, uh, first of all. It uh, doesn't mean you have to be a bike racer or anything like that, but you have to really love what the bicycle does, and you have to you have to be passionate about that. I would say the other thing is is uh, the way of working. You have to not just accept collaboration, but you have to thrive on it. Um, and I think the collaboration is really an important. Thing. And, and so it's not for everybody, you know, sometimes people come from other companies or big companies and they just want to do their thing and they don't want anybody to touch it. Um, that doesn't work here. Yeah, so what's, give me an example of collaboration there that some people might not be used to. Um, well, um, well. I would say, um, okay, if you're working on product and somebody may be developing a new, a new diverge, and they go, well, hey, here's here's this bike, and and I really like it, and my friends like it, and I've been making this prototype, and they will say, well, that's good, but we always like to get other input, and and sometimes. Sometimes people don't want that input, and they want to do it just the way they want to do it. Uh, and I would say that doesn't work here. What's important is that, it, that it's the best it can be, um, and there's things, ways of testing. And um, you know, for example, when we developed the tarmac as an example. The number of test frames we have, we had made and tested and destroyed on size 56 is about, is just over 200. Wow. So over all those bikes, all the different sizes, 56 is kind of the standard, but it's probably about 500. And, and so there's a really very tough uh, testing and protocol. So there's a lot of art involved, but there's also a lot of science. And and so that's what I mean with that. It is not, it's not, nobody can just overrule that protocol. And there's things that are more subjective, right? Like colors and graphics um, that we always go, hey, 
well, you're going to buy one bike. We'll make one like that. But what do the riders want? <laughs> right. So, um, you know, things, things um, like that. In fact, I would say, you know, we like things to be very open and uh, transparent, and also a lot of feedback from outside. And you know, one of the things I say, Tyler, is, you know, in starting a business or doing things, you know. Business in life is an open book test. What do I mean by that? I mean, anything you're doing, you can find, if you're open, you can find a lot of information and input how to do it. The thing is, most, a lot of people, they don't like to do that. They just want to do it the way they want to do it. Yeah, they're not um, looking for it. Yeah, and it doesn't mean that you just take the input and just follow it blindly, but it's part of the process, right? Right. No, I it's agree. Like, yeah. Yeah. So one of the things I'm kind of curious about is uh, among those employees, you do not count your children. You've got a son, and I think you have two daughters. Is that right? Yeah. And none of them are involved in the family business. Why is that? Well, I would say my son was involved uh, years ago and he helped us um, to uh, set up Taiwan years ago. Um, he speaks Chinese and Japanese, um, but he's helped us with that and he's helped us find some of our best talent uh, around. So, um, but he has his own business and he has, a, you know, his brand is Supercaz. So he has handlebar tape and, and grips, and he's doing just fine. He doesn't want to be in our, doesn't want to be with that, which I think is great. And um, both my daughters are studying to be Eastern medicine doctors. So, um, yeah, and my one daughter who uh, does work with our specialized foundation, the ADHD Foundation. Oh, cool. Right yeah. On. Yeah. So what is, uh, I, and hopefully it's not uh, yeah. too early to talk about it. Like, what what is the plan? I, will you just continue at Specialized until you can't? Or do you have some kind of transition plan? Yeah, well, I would say um, I've, I've uh, set up a financial structure and the structure for the business to, uh, to continue on. And um, so... And it's, uh, I think we have a good plan, and it's worked, it's worked pretty good for almost 44 years here, and uh, I think it'll, uh, it'll keep going. Great. Beyond, uh, way beyond me. <laughs> good. <laughs> so I want to talk about uh, the retail channel growth and tactics that Specialized has, because um, you guys have concept stores, you have regular retailers, um, and, and you know I've heard makes things you know some good some bad about how all of that works but if you want to you know just kind of provide an overview of how your retail strategy works then we can dive into some questions sure well i would say you know in the world overall people say there's there's not just cycling but overall in the world there's too much especially in the u.s there's too much retail and i would say yeah there's probably too much bad retail you know of malls and that but there isn't enough really great retail. Um, and I would say the same with, uh, you know, with bike stores. There's some really good ones that really, um, you know, cater to, to community. I mean, you're right there in Boulder, you know, you know, Doug's store and, and all that he does there. And I think really what we want to do is is help the, the great stores be better, um, and uh, and to continue to grow and and offer more uh, to the riders. I think for sure people buy things on the uh, other ways in the stores, but the great stores bring a lot, and I believe that they will continue to be and. Uh, Really, our strategy is just to support the best stores. Yeah. So, when you have a, a concept store, is it still independently owned, or do you guys end up having ownership in it? 
No, independently owned. Okay. And then yeah. as far as like, and maybe we could talk about both concept stores and non-concept stores. What, when Specialized goes in, because you guys, you know, not only make pretty much every part that goes on the bike, you also make pretty much everything a rider would need, you know, gloves, clothing, helmets. Um, you used to do sunglasses, but you have shoes. Yeah. You know, so really somebody could go in and they could come out with nothing but Specialized gear. But, um, you know, how do you how do you convince the stores or, or get the stores to carry all of that stuff as well? And then the flip side of that is, too, it's like we've heard that, you know, and not, this isn't just Specialized, but, you know, Specialized and Trek and Giant, the ones that have all of this, sometimes they tell the stores, well, hey, yeah, you guys need to just carry our stuff. I don't want, I don't want to see, like, Cali helmets or, or Belgiro helmets in there. But, you know, let's just do Specialized helmets. Yeah. Yeah, well, first of all, I think an um, uh, answer to it, you know, how do you get a lot of our stores um, we have worked with for whew, many, many years, and we have a big, uh, big background. And I think it's, you know, together we've grown the business, so it's kind of naturally that they would focus on us more. And of course, you know, in some ways, we like to work with stores that are, are aligned with us. Um, not meaning that they don't carry anything else, but but we are pretty aligned together. And I feel that that's the way we can serve the rider with all the technical things of suspension and everything else that's needed. So um, I think there's you know, and it's probably in some ways kind of like car dealerships, right? Not exactly, but, um, you know, it's a, it's a focus. I mean, we only sell to a, a fraction of the number of retailers um, in the market. Right. So do you yeah. guys, and like I said, ask this because, you know, for instance, I used to be in the beverage industry. So when we would go into a store, um, we would be trying to get our beverage in and they would say, well, I'm sorry, Coca-Cola has bought all the space, you know? And so, and then on the retail side of it, Coca-Cola would say, well, yeah, if you buy, you know, Dasani and Minute Maid and all of our other brands, then you'll get Coke for, you know, this price. But if you only want Coke, it's going to cost you more. So like, are there financial incentives or discounting programs for stores that carry the full specialized line versus just like the bikes? Yeah, I mean, I would say, the support we give retailers is is more, yeah, there is support for retailers. You know, if they, for example, if their people are educated on the product, if they're aligned with the brand and those things, I would say virtually everybody in business, uh, and for sure everybody in the bike business has a form of that. And some people's things are just volume based. Ours is not completely volume based. I believe that sometimes a smaller store, um, just like a small restaurant, can even in some ways do a better job than the big ones. So it's not about size. Yeah. So for some of the stores, um, yeah, the, I mean, I don't think it's any um, secret. You know, some independent bike shops are are struggling. So. How do you guys deal with a, a retailer that's maybe like has a ton of inventory and way, way behind on bills? Uh, you know, is there, do you just go in and collect the inventory eventually? Do you guys try and help that store out? Like what happens? Because I don't think that's an yeah. uncommon problem for brands that are selling primarily through independent retail. Yeah, I'd say it's, it's like any relationship to make it work, right? Um, and we work with those we work with those just like anybody. If people are open and transparent with us, we work with those retailers to to get in a healthy position and and uh, go forward. Yeah. Are there? And um, I, I don't want you to feel like I'm single and specialized yeah, out because yeah. every everybody no, no. does this, right? Like, and and non bike does yeah. this, but you know, there's a lot of brands have merchandising programs, right? Where they say, okay, well, you need to commit to X number of whatever x number of bikes x number of helmets x number of gloves and and sometimes 
that doesn't make sense for every retailer. Do you guys like, are there minimum buy-ins to become a specialized retailer or do you, how do you work that based on shop size? Well, I think we have to adjust it according to shop sizes. Some stores are primarily mountain stores or road stores. So, you know, we, we adjust to that. Okay. I, I think, I think in the end, what's important in the future is we want to reward stores for servicing the rider in the right way. Right. Cool. And you guys offer quite a bit too. I mean, beyond the products, you've got the the body geometry retool fit systems and I think like a saddle fit system. And there's some pretty cool other stuff you're working on that we're not supposed to talk about yet, but it's, yes. uh, yeah, it's, <laughs> it's neat, right? Like it's, it's not like you're just shoving product down. You're, you are providing services too, which I think is cool. Um, and, and I think ultimately that's where, this is my opinion, but like where the bike shops are going to have to move toward is more of a service model because, yes. you know, online sales are not going away. And so actually that's a great segue is maybe you could talk a little bit about how you guys are working your online sales program. Yeah. Well, I would say, I would say, yeah, in, in answer to that of, of investments, probably um, just to say, since the very beginning, um, all the profit of the company I've reinvested back in to, to do new things, whether it's things like the innovations you saw this year that take a long time, a lot of money. Um, so we will always do that. And uh, that's more important uh, to me than buying a big house or a yacht or something like that. I'd rather be uh, set up for the future um, and, and personally because that's the way I grew up on a farm. You know, we never spent much money. And uh, so as far as the online, what we've done is, is uh, like everybody, it improved our digital capability and, and really empowering our stores also to... Uh, connect up more with riders uh, digitally um, so we've done that and uh, allowing our stores to sell equipment online as well as we do too uh, we're still focused on the stores uh, on the bicycle uh, to give the complete service of the bike so yeah so we're helping the stores in that way uh, and also improving our capabilities yeah if, so if a customer goes onto your website and orders a helmet is that shipped to their local bike shop or is it shipped directly to the consumer well so when you go on the yeah good question so when you go on the website for a helmet um you can go on the store on there you can go on and for the stores that we're connected with uh digitally you can see oh hey the store in Boulder has it in stock. Um, you could either um, go to the store or you can uh, click and you could buy it online directly from that store or you could buy it online from us. Was there pushback from the your retailers when you introduced the online buying system? Um, no, I think well, we've been doing it for quite some time. And uh, no, I think people see, you know, that that's the right way to do it, and that we're also empowering them to do it as well. Yeah. So with the retailers that are in your system, so like if I went on and I needed a size medium Prevail helmet, and I saw, okay, great, my local shop has it, I would just you know go there because I could get it right away, which makes a lot of sense. But it. it the way you phrased it earlier, it makes it sound like some of your retailers are not on that system and aren't listing their inventory. Is that correct? Yes. Like what, why, I don't understand why anybody wouldn't. Like what are some of yeah. the reasons why they're not listing with you guys? Be, because because they uh, technically they're not set up with the computer uh, to do that. We have, we have a, a large percentage of our stores that are. And I think after this, you know, 12 months from now, we'll have virtually everyone. 
Okay. Is it a, a special, like a proprietary specialized system, or is it kind of that no. same inventory system that QVP pulls from? Yeah, it's, it's basically our system works with a multitude of different systems. Okay. Curious. All right, cool. Yeah. Yeah, so just really a couple more things. I mean, yeah. I think it'd be hard to finish an interview with you without at least talking about some of the um, kind of more public mistakes. I, well, mistakes, however you want to phrase it, but you guys have certainly drawn some criticism for some trademark issues or patent issues dealing with you know brands like Velagi or the Roubaix Cafe Bike Shop. Um, you know, I think from what we've seen from the outside is some of them were handled a little bit better than others, but I know talking to you and talking to some of their staff over the past year or so, it's nobody's afraid to talk about it, which I think is great. You know, you guys seem to own the mistake, whether or not it was yeah. handled right the first time, but you know, maybe you can talk a little bit about that. Like, how did, how did some of those issues come up? Because unfortunately, social media blows everything up these days, but like what happened? What went wrong that led to these problems? Well, I, I would say, if you talk about the Cafe Roubaix, I personally take responsibility for that. Um, and I would say, um, so there's no excuse, I own it. But I would say what had happened is uh, <clears throat> during a time period when we had so many people of trademark and counterfeit product, you know, our in-house attorney was just kind of just you know going across and and sending a cease and desist on virtually anything that was a trademark issue right, right. And, and and so that's how it happened and uh, no excuse it happened and it uh, yeah I, I think in the end um, it was it was solved in a good way um, but yeah that's yeah. that's what happened so, and and I would say Tyler even now I mean the amount of um, so so that was it Roubaix I own it um, I think the amount of counterfeit product and things that we have even today is huge you know we have virtually like five people that work on this full-time around the world um, and it's uh, it's pretty fast yeah how do you deal with counterfeits <laughs> well um, I could have you talk to our guy and he could tell you about it but it's it's uh, it's vast you know the first the first counterfeit tarmac that we ever saw I'll tell you a story. Came in on Monday morning, and one of the guys said, "Oh my God, look, we have this report of this guy that was riding down the hill at uh, 40 plus miles an hour, and the front end broke off the bike, and the guy's injured." And it was like, "Oh my God, how could this happen?" And then we started to look at the bike, and the head engineer came over and goes, "That's not our bike." <laughs> and uh, so it, it became, you know, one of the things when you have a counterfeit bike, it's different than having a counterfeit purse. <laughs> yeah, it's people's safety at stake. <laughs> oh, hugely. So, um, yeah, made plenty of mistakes on those things, tried to own it, um, or did own it, uh, tried to move forward in a positive in a positive way. So what kind of, um, I, I want to go back to the counterfeit thing, but let's, let's finish with yeah, the, yeah. the other stuff. So the, um, like what kind of policies or procedures have you guys put in place to help prevent this sort of like overreactive trademark you know, stuff from happening again? Well, I, I would say what we've done is slow down and go, okay, what is it? Where's it coming from? What is the source? Right. Is it a bike shop that's over here, or is it some anonymous person uh, who's selling stuff from China? Who is it, and what is it, right? Right. Uh, so that's really what we've done is to find out what 
what it is. Yeah. Okay. So then to the counterfeit stuff again. So, let, you know, like, let's say uh, Chinese factories making a counterfeit tarmac. Uh, you know, what do you do? Like, what recourse do you have? Because it seems like once you when you get one that pops up, you know, next door. Yeah. Well, I would say, first of all, we have to, to see what it is. And, uh, you know, our guy could tell you all about it. But first of all, we, we determine, you know, what it is, where it's coming from. And, um, and then, you know, we have, uh, we have closed down so many of these um, places that do this. It's amazing. It's amazing. I mean, millions and millions of dollars a year of counterfeit. And you know what's interesting, Tyler, is like um, if people are doing things in the drug trade, you go to prison, right? Um, if you're doing things in the counterfeit, you can usually escape. So how do you, like when you say you've closed them down, like do you guys, are you able to confiscate their manufacturing equipment to keep them from just turning around and putting it in another building? Or like how do you, it seems like it's almost impossible to stop. Um, essentially it is. And, and I think one of the things we try to be, and that's why we, you know, had the bad rap. We try to be one of the most aggressive. So if people go, Hey, they may decide to counterfeit things, but they're not, they probably will learn don't counterfeit specialized because we'll take a very strong position. Right. Now it seems like the only position you can, but yeah, it's a good thing. You kind of force them well, to counterfeit somebody else. <laughs> well, you can't control that. You can't control it. And, and we do work with other suppliers. I mean, we work with Colnago, Pinarello. We want to help everybody. We want the thing to, to subside. So when, like I know at your factory, you guys have a whole classroom dedicated to showing dealers how to identify counterfeits. I, you know, at, at first glance, I would think, okay, so that's if somebody brings a broken frame in or they need repair on it, they could identify it. But is there any instances where counterfeiter or counterfeit shipments are making their way into specialized dealers and those dealers don't even know they're stocking not your stuff? No, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Where people end up, where riders end up getting counterfeit things, if they see something online and they go, wow, what a great price, um, uh, not from a retailer, that's sometimes if it's too good to look too good to be true it probably is right all right yeah but i think through our retailers no okay so those were all my questions i kind of yeah you know if there's anything else you'd like to tell us about specialized it'd be awesome but um usually the way i finish is ask for you know a couple of maybe challenges that you guys have dealt with over the years and how you overcome them and then maybe one or two pieces of advice for entrepreneurs that want to launch something similar you know a, basically a, a product company yeah yeah well um well maybe um so i i think uh, one of the things i want to tell you about our foundation and uh, but as far as starting a company i think here's what i say if, to start a company, don't start a company because you go, hey, this is great, I can make money. If that's what your why is, I call it the why, it won't work. But if you believe in something and you're passionate about it, and then that's really powerful, right? Is, you know, I would always say, what is your why? My why is because I believe that cycling changes life, changed my life. I see it change a lot of people's lives. And that's why I started uh, Specialize. And I say, how do you succeed? Um, the way you succeed is you never give up. You never give up. And, you know, there's a Chinese symbol for crisis, and it has two symbols. One is danger, and the other one's opportunity. Hmm. And if you're open, to push through and be open and vulnerable, you can discover 
great solutions, right? That's what I believe. Awesome. And, and as far as the belief part, uh, you know, the belief that cycling changes life, um, that's how I got into writing. I, I actually became very addicted to writing and long distance writing. I still am. And uh, I never knew it uh, back in the day, but I, I realized later that I definitely have ADHD and my son has ADHD. And I remember reading an article once that uh, was written. It said, uh, this, this college kid said, writing is my Ritalin. And I read that and I said, oh my God, that's me, that's my son. That's probably most of the people that ride their bikes, most of the people in the world. So that's when we started the foundation years ago uh, with Harvard Medical. And now it's uh, we're working with Stanford. And there's a summit uh, next week on uh, August 2nd uh, called Writing for Focus. And uh, Stanford's doing a lot of research as well as practical things that we are doing uh, with schools. Um, and a lot of testimonials of uh, and, and scientific data where you know they put heart rate monitors on the kids they even do a brain scan before and after and the focus that the kids get from writing is powerful I don't know if you've seen our, our recent uh, video that we put out it's, it's on my list I'm embarrassed to say I haven't yet because I know you sent it out like a week and a half ago yeah yeah, it's a, yeah but, I've still got it saved in the tab. I just haven't watched it yet. Yeah, but, but I, I would say, you know, Tyler, I totally believe in that. I believe that as a society, we're going to look back in five years and go, as a society, and go, what the heck are we doing over-medicating our children? Oh, I agree. Right? I mean, I, I, you know, I, I drew all the time in class. I would have been told I had ADHD back in the 70s if they had realized that that was a thing. Yeah. But, you know, oh, yeah. I, I turned out fine, I think. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I had it so bad. I mean, I, I couldn't focus in school. I dropped out of high school. And, and uh, really writing really was, you know, saved me and, it, and my son as well. So, and so many people, um, so that's what the foundation is about. And it's not about specialists, it's about getting that word out. Um, like if you look in the video, there's no specialized bikes in the video. Um, we just want it to go live. We want it to go big. That's cool. And is that the same program, uh, Katie Sue was telling me about the, um, getting the bikes into schools as well and, and letting them be used in the PEO programs or after school programs. Is that the yeah. same thing or something else? That's it. That's awesome. totally it. And so at the end, we want, um, we know the cycling changes life. And through this, we believe, well, you have kids, you know, if we, if we get the kids into riding, the parents will get into riding. And we think through this, we can have a healthier um, group of kids. We won't over-medicate them. And, and at the same time, maybe outcome of that is cycling becomes um, the most popular activity in America. That would be great. Yeah, I think I see it. Yeah. Cool. Well, I will put links to the foundation and even put that video into the show notes uh, that I do for this episode. So thank you. Yeah. Thank you. With that, man, thank you for your time. I really oh, appreciate it. Tyler, thank you. You're very kind to uh, be interested and listen to me. Thank you. Cool. All right. Thank you, Mike. Have a great okay. day. Cheers. Bye. Specialized, like most brands that push the envelope, has ardent fanboys and its share of detractors. One of the things that impresses me most about the brand is its people, and how Mike has created an insanely strong culture that's as driven as he is. Sure, they do the small things like free donuts and gourmet small batch iced coffee on Fridays. That sounds trivial until you see the bigger picture. Those cheap pastries bring the entire office staff together to talk. Ideas are tossed around, friendships are formed, and the culture gets stronger. They're also known for their lunch rides, 
where groups of all abilities roll out to crush the local hills around HQ. As you're building your company, what could you do to bring your team together around shared passions? And how can that translate into something more than just improved morale? Do you think all that time spent talking and riding together helps them develop better ideas and products? I bet yes. I really like Mike's open-minded look at business. He recognizes that great ideas come from everywhere and everyone. So he's built his culture to encourage teamwork and they continually look outside their own heads to find new and better ideas. That's led to some unique designs and new products and Specialized is one of the most popular bike brands in the world. But the important thing I'd like to reiterate is that Mike started with a single product. No one becomes a global giant overnight. So take that first step today and get your own adventure going right now. Wherever you're listening, can you hit that subscribe button? And while you're there, please rate and give me a quick review so more people can find the build cycle. It only takes a second, but I really want to hear what you think. As always, thanks for listening and keep building.